Good morning. Uh, my name is Tin. Uh, I'm doing the second uh, Bible reading this morning. And the second Bible reading is taken from the Gospel according to John. Uh, it's John chapter 3, verse 1 to 21. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter the second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh give birth to flesh, but the spirit give birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows whenever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the names one and only Son. This is the word. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness. Who does evil hates the night, and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives in the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And this is the very word of God. Thanks, Tim. Uh, good morning. My name's Ali. I'm one of the ministers of our church, and uh, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, just a few things before we begin. If you're a note taker, uh, then you'll find an outline in your handout, so you might like to look at that. 
And then I did want to say, I mean, we, you've heard it many times, but just on behalf of the Community Day team, uh, what a great day it was yesterday. We had hundreds of people uh, across site across the four hours of the day. So uh, praise God for that, for great connections with our community. And thank you to you who served. Thank you to those of you who came along and thank you to all of you for your prayers. So much appreciated. Well, today we're starting our, our new series called What, Mu- what We Must Believe, and it's on the Holy Spirit. And so, what do we believe about the Holy Spirit? Well, He's God. He's a person, the third person of God. And consistent with the Nicene Creed, uh, which says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. And uh, today we're going to look at, look at an occasion where Jesus speaks about the Spirit as the Lord and giver of life. And so, I'm looking forward to it. Hopefully you are. But as we begin, let's uh, pray first. So, please pray with me. Great God above, we know that uh, the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. And so as we sit under your word now, uh, would you be at work in us through your word and through your spirit as we consider how we might have true life? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had a near-death experience? Now, I don't just mean when you're a kid and you did something wrong and so your mum was yelling at you or when you had a spicy curry for dinner and felt like you were going to die, but a genuine, real-life, near-death experience. I remember when I was about 20 or so, I was driving home late one night and I stopped at an intersection. There weren't many cars around and I waited for the light to go, and when the light went, I started to take off, but as I did, my CDs slipped down. Now, we don't have CDs anymore, but at the time we did, they fell down. So I just quickly paused, and I picked up the CDs, I put them back in, and then continued on. I was only stopped for about five seconds or so, but you know what happened? As I was going through the intersection then, someone came speeding the other way, ran the red light at about 100 kilometers an hour, and they missed my car, I'm not exaggerating, by millimeters. And if I hadn't have stopped to pick up the CDs, they would have come straight into the side of me and I'd be dead. That would have been the end of me. I wonder, have you ever had a near-death experience like that? Or what about this? Have you ever had not a near-death experience, but have you ever had a near-life experience? Have you ever had one of those? I've just got back from a few weeks of annual leave and it was great. Uh, One of the things we did though across the the time was we went to the aquarium and we took Levi there. And this uh, this is us at the aquarium. Levi loved it there. You can see the shark there swimming out. But Levi loved it. And we got to see all of the giant uh, stingrays and the sharks and the fish and the eels and it was great. And then afterwards, I I felt like fish and chips just to celebrate sea life uh, (laughs) properly. But you know what? As we were there, and as I was looking at all of those weird and wonderful sea creatures, I had a near-life experience. I felt like I'd had just a glimpse, just a little one, of the underlying reality of this world, the underlying truth, the underlying beauty. I'd got a small taste of true life. I experienced something similar when Levi was born, as I was staring down into the face of my newborn son, and I realized that this is my offspring. It was a powerful moment. It was a near-life experience, as I had a brush with life, a small taste of the deeper underlying reality of this world. 
Have you ever experienced something like that? Have you ever had a near-life experience? Well, in our passage today, uh, that's what we see. Not a near-death experience, but a near-life experience. We see a man who doesn't stare death in the face, but stares life in the face. He doesn't have a brush with death, but has a brush with life. This is the story about Nicodemus, and he's a well-known Jewish leader. And he's evidently seen all that Jesus has been doing, and he's been struck by that. And so he comes to Jesus, and in verse 2 he says, We know you're from God, because no one could do what you're doing unless they were from God. And then as this conversation unfolds, he has a near-life experience. He has a brush with the deeper underlying reality of this world. And in fact, the brush he has with life is deeper than mine at the aquarium, and it's deeper even than looking at my newborn son, because this isn't just a brush with life, this is the full-blown thing. He sees firsthand, up front, the underlying foundational reality about life. And as he experiences this near-life experience, we actually get to have that near-life experience as well, as we look in. And so, what is it that he sees? And by extension, what is it that we see? Well, we learn two foundational truths about life. The first is this. We need the Spirit to gain life. We need the Spirit to gain life. Because as Jesus and Nicodemus talks, Jesus makes this very clear. Nicodemus has just told Jesus he knows he's from God. This is a man who's seen the signs and is ready to ask the deeper questions. And Jesus obliges him straight away. Jesus tells him what he has to do to gain life. Did you see that in verse 3? Have a look. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now the kingdom of God is a term Jesus uses quite a lot and he uses it to refer to heaven, to eternal life spent with God, to true life. And how do we get this eternal life with God? Well, we have to be born again. Now, understandably, Nicodemus hears that and he's just a little bit confused. He's thinking literally and he knows that that's impossible. Have a look at verse 4. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And he's right. I mean, of course, a full-blown, full-grown adult can't fit into their mother's womb. I mean, it's hard enough to fit a baby in there. Pregnant women get uh, pretty big by the end. But could you imagine a pregnant lady with me inside of her, all 90 kilos of me? Imagine how horrifyingly big she'd be. I mean, of course it doesn't fit. A full-grown adult cannot fit into their mother's womb. But Jesus isn't talking about a physical birth or rather physical rebirth. He's talking about a spiritual rebirth. Did you see that as he continues? Have a look at verse 5. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. See, to get life, you have to be born not physically, but spiritually born of water and spirit. Now, that idea of born of water can be a bit confusing. Some people have thought that it's referring to physical birth because what happens when a woman gives birth? Well, her waters break. So some people think that that's what Jesus is referring to, our first physical birth. 
Others think he's referring to baptism, which does involve a lot of water. Now, obviously, Jesus is very positive towards baptism, but in the context here, it doesn't fit because baptism hasn't been mentioned at all in this conversation. And so, the mention of Jesus mentioning water by itself doesn't necessarily mean he must be talking about baptism. But instead, I think the most persuasive case for what this is talking about is an Old Testament reference. Now, keep your finger here, but flip with me back to Ezekiel. So, our first Bible reading, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. In Ezekiel 36, we see God speaking to his people. And he talks about how he'll wash them clean by his spirit. And this is what it says. Have a look, verses 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Do you see what it's saying? This is one of the beautiful Old Testament prophetic predictions about when God will wash his people clean by giving them his spirit. And this is what the Old Testament does. It seems to often link this Holy Spirit with water. And so in a sense, water and spirit here are referring to the same thing, the supernatural work of God in causing someone who believes in Jesus to be born again. Because that term born again literally means born from above, born by God's Spirit. And when you hear that, you might think of passages like John 1.13, which talks about not a physical birth, but a supernatural birth. Not a birth of blood or will or flesh, but life through God's Spirit. And that's what Nicodemus needs. He needs the Holy Spirit to give him this new birth. He needs the Spirit to gain life. Jesus then uh, makes the point again in verse 6. Have a look. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. See, physical bodies make physical births, physical lives, and the Spirit makes spiritual lives. And Jesus then illustrates that with a small parable. He compares the Spirit with the wind. And now this works really well because actually in Hebrew, the word for spirit and wind are the same word, ruach. And in Greek, it's the same word as well. It's pneuma. And so Jesus is using a clever play on words here to illustrate his point. See, we don't know where the wind begins or ends, but we can see and feel the wind at work. And in the same way, we might not know the Spirit's beginning or end, but we can see Him at work in people. Doing what? Well, giving them life. Because we need the Spirit to gain life. And really, this is the heart of this near-life experience for Nicodemus and for us. See, it's vital that we get this. We need the Spirit to bring life. And that's because the Bible describes us as dead in our sins. We've rejected God and we've turned our backs on Him and the consequence of that is death. Not just physical death, though certainly that eventually, but spiritual death too. 
We are dead in our sins. And so what we need most desperately of all is life. But we can't get that life, and we know that, because we know that dead bodies can't bring themselves back to life. But don't take my word for it. Take the word of an expert. Here at church, we have a few cardiologists, a few heart specialists, and they are experts. They know what happens when the heart stops beating, which is otherwise known as dead. Um, And so I asked them this question. I sent them, a a couple of them, a text message uh, this week, and I said, "Uh, have you ever seen someone whose heart has stopped use the defibrillator on themselves? Uh, Have they ever leaned over, picked up the defibrillator, given themselves an all clear, and then zapped themselves? Have you ever seen that? And uh, one of them answered this, no, never. And then he went on to give me a whole long uh, lecture about what a defibrillator does and is. Um, And then the other one simply said to me, uh, no, I've not seen, never seen that smiley face. And so, um, so don't take my word for it, take the word of experts, but dead bodies do not do that. Dead bodies do not bring themselves back to life. What they need is someone else to pick up the defibrillator, give them that heart starter. And in the same way, we are spiritually dead. And so what we need is someone to get that spiritual defibrillator to start our spiritual heart. And the one who does that is the Holy Spirit. He's the only one who can do that. We need the Spirit to gain life because he's the life-giving Spirit. How is the Spirit able to do that though? Well, it's because of Jesus' death on the cross. That's what that illustration there in verses 10 to 15 is about with Moses and the snakes. It's referring to Numbers 21. We heard a little bit of it in the kids' talk. The Israelites were in the wilderness and they started complaining and grumbling about and against God. God had just graciously rescued them from slavery in Egypt and yet that's how they repay him. They spat in his face. And so God sent snakes as judgment. And the people, though, came to Moses and they asked him to intercede. And he tells them, well, you were complaining about God. And so that's why God sent snakes and you deserve it. But then they beg, they beg, please intercede for us. And so Moses does, he intercedes with God and God says, well, here's the answer. Anyone who looks on this snake, snake on a pole, will live. And think about it, if you've just been bitten by a snake the last thing you want to do is look at a picture of a snake. That's what's causing you death. But by looking at the snake, it's agreeing with God's judgment. It's basically saying, I deserve this. I deserve being bitten by this snake because I sinned against God. I rebelled against God. See, the snake represents God's judgment on them. And in the same way, Looking at Jesus and looking at the cross is agreeing with God's judgment against us. It's agreeing that God's judgment is deserved because I rebelled against God. See, the snake represents God's judgment on the Israelites and the cross represents God's judgment on me. But in God's mercy, that judgment that I deserve is taken by Jesus for my sake. Why? Well, so that I might live. 
That's what the famous Bible verse there is about. It's perhaps the most famous Bible verse in the whole of the Bible. Many of you might uh, know it off the top of your head. You may not even need to look at the verse, but do have a look with me. Uh, Verse 16. So John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. See, Jesus took our sins so that we might be saved, so that we might have life. And what does the Holy Spirit enable me to do? Well, the Holy Spirit enables me to put my name into that verse. For God so loved Ollie that he gave his one and only son for Ollie, so that Ollie might not perish, but Ollie shall have eternal life. Can you say that? Is that true for you? See, how do you know if you have the Holy Spirit and the life that the Spirit offers? Well, you can read verse 16 like that. You can put your name into it like that. And if you can, then you have the life given by the Spirit. See, new birth enables me to believe in Jesus. But so important we remember, there's no other way to life other than through the Spirit. And so today, as we see this near-life experience for Nicodemus, and as we have our own near-life experience, as we watch on, whatever you do, do not miss this. It's the absolute foundational reality of this world. We need the Spirit to gain life. But what kind of life is it? Well, that's what we see with our second underlying truth. That's what we learn from this near-life experience. And the second foundational truth is this. We need the Spirit to live in light. We need the Spirit to live in light. See, the Spirit doesn't just give us life. He also enables us to live life. He enables me to live live life in God's way. He enables me to live life to the full in the joyful and satisfying way that God has designed us to live. And we see that with the contrast that Jesus gives, a contrast of light and dark. Now, uh, darkness is a terrible thing, but I think we've lost a little bit of that in our modern world because we never really are exposed to genuine darkness. A couple of months ago, I went for a jog late at night, around 10.30 or so, but even that late at night, there were still so many different lights around. As I was jogging along, there was the lights coming from the street lights up above. There was the lights coming from the windows in the houses I was jogging past. There was lights coming from cars as they drove along. And I even had my phone on me so I could pull that out and use that for light if I needed. See, even while I was outside so late at night, there was still light around. And so we don't really experience true darkness anymore. But in Jesus' time, darkness was a very different thing. It was the darkness of a complete absence of light, a darkness so thick you could put your hand in front of your face and not see it. And darkness like that is a dangerous thing. You don't know who or what is waiting for you there, waiting to attack and harm you. Thieves? Murderers, 
wild animals waiting to devour. In true darkness, any of those might be just there and you don't know it. See, true darkness is a terrible thing. And yet, even though that's what darkness is like, somehow we still want to live in darkness. Did you see that? Have a look at verses 19 and 20. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Have you ever noticed the difference between moths and cockroaches? When the light goes on, what do moths do? Well, they flock to the light. That's where they go instantly. But what do cockroaches do? Well, they scurry away to darkness. They flee the light. And in a sense, by nature, we are cockroaches. By nature, we flee the light and scurry towards darkness. Why? Well, I think it's because of shame and guilt. Deep down, I think we're all weighed down by the shame of knowing that what we've done so many times is wrong, even evil. The guilt of knowing that we've acted in ways that have dishonored God and hurt others. I wonder, have you ever felt shame and guilt about something you've done? Deep down, you knew it was wrong. Deep down, you knew you shouldn't have done it. And I'm sure even as you're thinking now, you can think of things that you would be mortified if someone else knew that you had thought or done that. And so what we do is we try and hide it away. We don't want anyone to know. And so we try and hide away in the darkness where the light of day will never shine its revealing light on those things we've done. But still we know and still God knows. Have you ever experienced that? Well, I think it's because of that that we gravitate towards darkness, just like cockroaches. We scurry away from the light and into the darkness because we can't handle it. But the incredible news is that we do not need to be cockroaches anymore. Through the Spirit, we can be more like moths. Because what do they do? as soon as the light goes on, they flock to the light. They swarm to it. They love the light. And they'll do anything they can to get into the light. And we can live like that because our guilt and our shame has been washed away by Christ's death on the cross. And so now we are free to come into the light, free of fear, free of anxiety, free of the crushing weight of guilt and shame. See, the Spirit offers us life, life lived in light. He enables us to live God's way. He enables us to live life to the full in the joyful and satisfying way that God has designed us to live. Have a look at verse 21. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. See, the Spirit offers us a life of living in the light where everything is exposed. What is it that's exposed? Well, not our shame and our guilt now, but God's mighty work in us, shaping and sanctifying us by His Spirit 
into the image of His Son. Because that is what the Spirit does. He doesn't just give us light, but He also helps us to live life well in a way that honors God. He helps us to grow in godliness and in grace, in forgiveness and in faithfulness, in mercy and in maturity. He helps us to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. He helps us to hate sin and love God. And so what we actually see as God's people is a slow change in us over time. Uh, to become a member here at St. Stephen's, one of the things you need to do is to share your testimony. And in the lead up to that, anyone who wants to become a member uh, gets assigned to either one of the staff workers or to one of the elders. And that ministry staff or that elder will meet with the, the person and go over their testimony. And it's a really great thing. I love being involved with that. I love doing that. And so joyful to hear how God has been at work in people's lives. But one of the things that comes up time and time and time again is the change that God has brought about in people. Helping them to grow away from sin and towards God. So that now the sins and the things that they used to love have lost their luster. Whereas in the past they loved certain sins, now they detest them. See, that is the work of the Spirit, helping them to live in light. And I wonder, reflecting back on your life, can you resonate with that? Are there patterns and ways you used to live, things you used to do, sins you used to wallow in, that now seem so abhorrent to you? It's not that you're perfect, of course not. We won't be perfect until heaven. But as the Spirit has worked in you, He's continued to bring you into the light and caused your distaste for sin to grow and your desire to please God to get stronger and stronger. Have you experienced that? Well, that's what the Spirit offers us, a light of life, a life of light. Not a perfect life, but a life lived in honour to God, in honour of God, because God has first saved us. But it's only by the Spirit that we can have a life like that. We need the Spirit to live like that, to live in light. And so this morning, uh, we've looked at Nicodemus's near-life experience as he came face-to-face -face with Jesus. But as we have, we've also had our near-life experience too, as we've come face-to-face -face with Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And as we've had this near-life experience, we've seen two foundational truths about this world. We need the Spirit to gain life, and we need the Spirit to live in light. But the thing is, you can't do nothing you can't do nothing. How crazy would it be to have this near life experience and then do nothing? I heard this story recently about a former rugby league star in England, David Nelson. Uh, sadly, David was shot and killed at the age of 38 in a pub in England. And to make it even sadder, his friend Montgomery uh, tried to intervene and, and protect him and was also shot and killed because of it. But do you know the crazy thing? Just a few days earlier, someone had shot at David in that exact same pub. In fact, the bullet came so close to him that it passed through his hair. Now talk about a near-death experience, to be shot at, the bullet goes through your hair. But despite that, 
David didn't change a thing. He went right back to the same pub just a few days later. He didn't go to a different bar. He didn't tell the police. He didn't make a run for it with his seven-year-old daughter. He just went on, continuing on, like nothing had happened until a bullet killed him and his friend died and his seven-year-old daughter became fatherless. How sad that is to have a near-death experience like that, to have a chance to change and to do nothing. Don't let that be you. How sad it would be if that was us, if we did nothing, if we'd experienced this near-life experience today and went away completely unchanged. But you know what? Nicodemus didn't do nothing. Uh, We actually meet Nicodemus a few other times in the Bible. We see him again in John chapter 7, just a few chapters later. And at that stage, Nicodemus is standing up for Jesus a bit more strongly. See, in our passage, Nicodemus comes at night and he's wanting to be secret. But by chapter 7, he's even bolder. But then again, we see Nicodemus in John chapter 19, right at the end. Nicodemus goes with Joseph of Arimathea and he gets Jesus' body. See, what started as a secret has now turned into an outright, bold, I'm one of them relationship. See, Nicodemus did respond. He didn't do nothing. It would appear that by the end of John's gospel, he's born again. God's spirit has given him the life he so desperately needed. See, he started off with a near-life experience, but by the end of John's gospel, he has a full-life experience, an eternal-life experience. See, this is a conversion story right before our eyes. And some of you have got one, and the rest of you can have it. But whatever you do, don't be like David Nelson. Don't do nothing. Instead, be like Nicodemus. Experience this near life experience and respond. Ask God's Spirit, the life-giving Spirit, to do that, to give you life and to help you live in the light. Because Jesus Christ was lifted up high, lifted on a cross, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. I'm going to pray and thank God for that, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life that you offer uh, because of Christ's death in our place so that our sin and guilt and shame might be washed clean. Uh, We thank you that because of that, all who look at the cross might be saved. Uh, Would you pour your spirit out on us, bringing about this change in our hearts. Uh, We thank you for the way you have brought about this life in so many of us here. Uh, Would you help us to continue to live in the light? Not because that's what earns it, but because of Jesus' death in response to that, by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.